Uh, well, this morning we get to continue in our series through the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and flip that open to Romans chapter 12? If you don't have a Bible, we have a few in the back. We would love to let you have a copy. Feel free to go back and grab one of those. Also, we have Spanish Bibles, so if you prefer that, you can grab one of those as well. Um, so this morning we get to we get to jump into Romans chapter 12, and thanks to Anne for reading that for us. And so far, uh, as we've been walking our way through the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters, Paul has been giving us, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, uh, sort of this master class of theology, kind of going into the deepest waters of theology. He spends 11 chapters unpacking this, the, the incredible, an incredible amount of like foundational theological gospel concepts, um, things that we need to know about God, things that we need to know about ourselves, things that we need to know about the gospel, how it works, where it came from, where it's going. So far in our journey over the past several months through this book, we've seen, we've seen astounding things being said by, by God to us through Paul. We've seen that we are created beings, that we have a creator, that we are created for our creator, for the glory of our creator. And we, we see very early on that we have traded this glory for lesser things. We've traded the thing that we were made for, the glory of God, we've exchanged it for lesser things, and we've given ourselves to other things, other lesser things, created things. And it says that every person who's ever lived, apart from Jesus, has fallen short in this way. They've fallen short of the glory of God, as it says. All have sinned and have fallen short of this standard of God's glory, being the highest good. And that is what, he says, makes us sinful, sinful beings. We're, we're infected now with this sinful condition that we have inherited, he says in, in chapter 5, from our first father, Adam. It's worked its way all the way down through every, it's infected every human being who is ever born apart from Christ, and it infects us, this sinful nature that we, we inherit. But in spite of this, in spite of all of these things, Paul's making clear to us, he says, in spite of all of that, God has made a way for us to be righteous, to be restored back into the place where God intends for his people to be. In a position of righteousness and a reconciliation back to himself. Where we were cut off by our sin, he's made it possible now for us to be reconciled back to him and to be righteous before him. He has removed the righteous requirement from the law because he has sent Jesus to live the law and fulfill it for us. So we no longer look to the law or, the, or our own righteousness as a way to be righteous before God. We look now to Christ. And it says that we are not saved by our, our works or our behavior or our ability or inability to do the law. We are saved by faith. We put our faith now in Jesus, just like Abraham did all the way back thousands of years ago. He, he's, he's painting this picture for us now. of This is the way that righteousness is attained, not by our works, but by our faith. And this is all part of God's plan and his intention for us and his people. But it has been his plan all along. But our righteousness now comes through faith 
in Jesus. God has initiated our salvation and he has accomplished it in and through Jesus. And now, because of that, we are promised. We are the promised ones. We are promised that those who are in Christ, who who have that faith in Christ and are, are found in him, that they will never again taste the wrath of God. The rightful wrath that we had earned, they won't taste it. It says there is now no wrath, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That has been permanently taken away from you. Now we are, instead of given wrath, we are given God's spirit. We're given his very spirit that lives and dwells in us as his people. And we are sent out now as his messengers to proclaim this good news. This news that has been told to us and exercised upon us by God, we are to proclaim it now to the world. And it says that anyone who believes in this good news and repents and believes in Christ will be saved. The gospel is sufficient to save anyone who will repent and believe. And we proclaim this message. And God is proclaiming this message through his people, through us. So, God's people are no longer now identified by a particular nation or a particular bloodline of people. God's people are identified by those who are in Christ, and that's it. That's it. That's how we are identified as God's people. Are you in Christ or not? That's how we know. So now, that's sort of like the the very brief sort of synopsis of what we've talked about over the past several months. But now we get to chapter 12, and Paul sort sort of shifts the conversation a little bit. He shifts the conversation from sort of these indicatives, right, these things that, that he's saying that are true, things that God is declaring. And he's, he's moving the conversation now into this world of what we call imperatives, things for us to do in response, things that are, that are now, in light of what we know, things that we should respond to the news of what we just read and believed in the first 11 chapters. And so we, we start here, and we recognize this in the beginning of chapter 12 because he, he, he uses the language that would indicate that he's, he's flipping the conversation, right? Look what he says in the beginning of chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And as we talk about all the time, whenever we see that word therefore, we say, okay, what is that therefore, therefore? And we say, okay, this is tying back to something that was just said. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you, I'm telling you it in response to what we just talked about, which is the first 11 chapters. He's he's switching the conversation over. Now, because of all of that, he's making an appeal to us. He's saying, okay, now, in light of that, I appeal to you, brothers. He's urging them. This is another, the NIV uses the word urge. I urge you, right? He's he's sort of, it's more of just, than just like a, a debate. He's like, he's pleading. He's urging from a sense of, of desperation, from a sense of great concern, right? He's urging us to look back and saying, therefore, brothers, in light of all that I've just said about God, about the gospel, I want to make this appeal to you. And he's urging us to do something. And notice the word that he uses, brothers, right? He's talking to people who are in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, he's urging the believers that he's speaking to to do something, to respond. And so what is he urging us to do? Notice what he says next. 
urging us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is an enormous statement. This is one of the most enormous statements probably in all of the Bible. This is Paul saying, okay, out of everything that we've just talked about, all this this deep theological knowledge, all these imperatives of what God says to be true, all of these grand themes that we've seen traced through the lines of thousands of years of history that have culminated in Christ. He's come, He's lived, He's died, He's resurrected, and now here we are. He says, because of all of that, I'm urging you to do this. To present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices. This He's sort of encompassing the totality, in some ways, of what it means to be a Christian. Of how we live our lives as Christians. But before we get into that, before we get into what he's saying about this, this idea of presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, notice what he says before that. This phrase, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. What he wants to do here is he wants to ground the next thing that he's saying in the right place, in the right frame of motivation for us. As we receive this information about, okay, what do we do? We've been waiting. Okay, tell us how to live. Tell us what to do. He's saying before, okay, I'm going to tell you, but I want you to remember not to, not to misplace your motivation as I get ready to explain to you what, you're about, what you need to do, what God is calling and asking every one of us to do. Notice what he doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say, I appeal to you, therefore, in view of God's wrath or in view of God's condemnation, right? But... By the wrath of God, notice he doesn't use that kind of language. Why? Well, he's already told us that those things are gone. For those who are in Christ, those things are no longer applicable to us. The wrath of God, God is not storing up wrath for us anymore. All the wrath that we have deserved has been poured out on Christ. So he doesn't, he doesn't use those things as motivations for us to, do, to now live for God. He doesn't say, okay, God has saved you, and now remember what he saved you from, his wrath. So because he saved you from that wrath, now remember you've got to live right for him because God's wrath is a big deal. God's condemnation is serious. It is. But he's not, he's not grounding what we do back into the motivations of fear of God's wrath. He's grounding our motivations and what we do for God back into what? The mercy of God. He's saying, no, reflect back not on his wrath, which is a serious thing, but reflect back on his mercy. In view of God's mercy, that's what the NIV says. By the mercies of God, think back. And now as you think about how you're going to live for God, what God is asking you to do, make sure that your motivations are grounded in the right place. They're grounded in mercy and not fear. We ground our motivations for God in His mercy and not fear. Our behavior for God doesn't come from a motivation of fear. It comes from a motivation of mercy. Now, that's not to say that we don't fear God in any sense. We do fear God in a sense of reverence, in a sense of awe, in a sense of respect for Him. 
The Bible talks a great deal about that. That we, that we revere God, and, we, and it uses the word fear of God in that way. And that's, and that's a good way. That's a good way that we should fear God. And we never stop fearing God in this way. We never stop revering Him. We never stop looking to Him as being over us, or more powerful than us. Giving Him the reverence and the awe that He deserves. What Paul is saying here is that we present our bodies to God as living sacrifices, not because we are afraid that if we don't, God will condemn us. He's saying we do so because God has already promised not to condemn us. And that only happens because of his mercy towards us in Christ. There's a flip. It's a flip in our minds. It's a flip in our hearts. And it's a flip from how we we would typically sort of, I think, engage with God. How most religions, I think, typically engage with God or their sense of God, or whatever they think God is. Most, most religions will look to some sort of deity and say, okay, you have to appease this deity. And, and so most of your life now is centered around how you live and the things that you do and the sacrifices that you make and whatever dances you do or whatever it is, all for the purpose of keeping this God sort of at bay from your life. And that's your motivation, right? You give yourself to this motivation because if you don't, then you're going to feel the wrath of your God. But that's not Christianity. <laughs> that's not Christianity. We have, been, we have been saved by God outside of ourselves. God's grace has come to us. Salvation has come to us, not because of what we've done. It's, come, it's an alien righteousness that's come to us from outside of ourselves. It hasn't been earned by us from the start. And so our motivation now for living for our God it's not based on that. It's based on us reflecting back and looking at his great grace to us and his great mercy to us to, to meet us while we were yet sinners and to die for us. It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. Motivated not by fear of condemnation. Because a fear-based religion it, it, it's a fear is fear in that way is a, is a good temporary motivator. It's a very good temporary motivator. If you have kids, you, re, you realize how much fear can motivate your kids for a little bit. Right. You can say, hey, I'm going to come up there. And they're like, OK, is he, okay he's gone. All right, I'm going back. Right. Like, like they just wait a second. And as soon as the as soon as that fear goes away, the feeling of the fear goes away, that it goes right back to whatever they're doing. Right. This, this fear-based religion thinking is, temp- is not sufficient. It's not sufficient to propel us and uphold us for our whole life in Christ. It might work for a bit, but eventually it will turn to either exhaustion or indifference. Exasperation. of Like, what's the point? I'm just so tired of trying to keep God off my back. Also, this, this kind of fear-based behavioral living, it can, it can sort of make repentance seem like a bad thing instead of a good thing. If we don't, if we don't know that we have the security of Christ, like we talked about this morning, we prayed about it in Scott's prayer, 
the security of the gospel, of knowing that we are not under God's condemnation. Not because of us, because of Him. We're not under His wrath. If we don't know that we have that security, well, then we'll have a tendency to self-justify, constantly live a life of, of rationalizing our sin and self-justifying, ju- self-justification of our sin. To make it seem less than it really is. Or explain it away. Instead of embracing it and repenting and confessing openly and freely of our sin. And saying, yeah, man, I messed up. I failed. And, and I can admit that. Why? Because, because of God's grace is greater than even my sin. I can acknowledge my sin. I don't have to rationalize it away. For fear of being, of being whacked on the head by, by some God up in the heavens. It can, it, can, it can move us away from repentance instead of towards repentance. Also, this, this sort of fear-based religion, it doesn't really hold up well under suffering or trials. It doesn't, it doesn't sustain us in the midst of suffering. Why? Because it's like, well, God, I've tried to live a good life for you. How could you allow this to happen to me? Or, yeah, I guess I just had this coming. I, I just haven't really been living right, so this makes sense in my life. You see, it, it just it kind of crumbles under the weight of suffering and trials in our lives. It doesn't hold up. So the motivation is God's mercy and His grace toward us and His acceptance of us. We work from God's acceptance and not for God's acceptance. But remember, this, this only applies to those who are in Christ. Paul's very clear about that. It, it only applies to those who are in Christ. How do we get in Christ? We, we surrender our life to him. We put our faith in him and our trust in him. But if you haven't done that, then this doesn't apply to you. Those who don't belong to Christ, Paul says you should very much fear his wrath. And his condemnation, it's, it's a very real thing. For the believer, it's not the case. And it's not the motivation for how we live. Okay, so what's the action here? So that we, we talked about our, you know, this appeal that he's making. He's saying, okay, I'm appealing to you based upon what we've talked about. The mercies of God that you should, you should do something for God, but not for the wrong reason. Your, your action for God should be propelled by God's love for you and His mercy and His grace toward you. So what now is the action that He's urging us and appealing to us to do? He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So this is sort of like temple language, like ritual temple sacrifice language that He's using. He's, what he's saying here is that in light of what God has done for us in Christ, we now offer ourselves. We offer ourselves. This is what this word present is getting. It's like the same thing that you would go to the temple and you would, you would present your sacrifice at the temple. We offer ourselves as a sacrifice back to God. As a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Just like in the temple, they would go, and there were two types of, generally two types of sacrifices. There were sin offerings, and we know that Jesus is our ultimate first and final 
sin offering, sufficient for the whole world. So he's not talking about a sin offering, but there's this other kind of offering that's called this whole burnt offering. And it was sort of like the best, the best of what you had, the best, the best of your livestock, without blemish, the, the best of the best, you would bring it to the temple and you would offer that. And it was essentially saying to God, okay, God, you have, our, you have access to all that we have. We give you the best of the best. We don't give you the leftovers of whatever we have. We don't put all the best meat up first and keep all the best livestock and just kind of give you the scraps. Saying, no, God, you get the first. You get, the, you get all of what we have. And this is a representation by us giving you the best. We're saying that you have it all. And this is the picture that Paul is trying to paint for us here. This idea of this living sacrifice that we give ourselves back to God. We offer ourselves to him totally. And we don't hold anything back. We don't give him just sort of the scraps. We don't, we don't give him whatever's left after we give everything else to the world and every, everybody else around us. It's like, no, we give ourselves totally and fully to him. We give him our best. And this word bodies here, this is a significant word because it's not just talking about our, simply just our physical bodies. It's talking about the whole of who we are. The whole of our bodies, the whole of our, our, our whole being. Physically, spiritually, mind, body, soul. However you want to categorize all those things. Everything that you are is wrapped up in this idea of presenting your body, your whole self, everything about you to God as a living sacrifice. And notice the, the sort of contrast of language there, right? Because what we know about sacrifices is that sacrifices were something that would die. So it's saying, no, there's this living sacrifice, this idea of a living dying. A living dying. Which seems like it would be hard to understand unless we read what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, right? I should start ringing some bells. If we're familiar with what Jesus was saying, we, should, we, can read chapter, we can read Romans 12 and go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Jesus was talking about this in Luke chapter 9. Look what he says in Luke 9, 23 and 24. Jesus says to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it you see the same kind of language this sort of living sacrifice kind of language it's a living dying we die to ourselves so that we can live in christ we make ourselves we offer all of who we are as a living sacrifice entrusting ourselves back to god and then in exchange jesus says that is actually the way in which you find life. We often think that we, we it's the opposite, right? That, we, uh, that if we try to save our lives, then that's what we should do. We should, we should try to preserve our lives. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Take your hands off of your life and give your life to me. That's actually the way in which you find it. You save it, is what he says. Following Jesus requires us. And this is an important distinction for us to make. This, is a, this isn't just a suggestion. This isn't just Paul being like, you know, this might, this might be a good way to approach this whole Christian thing. You consider it. He's like, no, this is, a, this is a requirement. This is God's call. that we, requ we 
It requires our lives. We take up our cross daily. We offer our whole selves to God as living sacrifices. And that kind of sacrifice, it says, is holy and it's acceptable to God. It's the kind of sacrifice that God finds acceptable to himself. Our whole lives, our whole bodies, our whole minds, all of our emotions, all of our desires, all of our fears, all of it brought to the altar and laid before him. And he says, I find that acceptable. I find that a holy offering that I will receive. And he says that this is a profoundly good idea. <laughs> it's a profoundly good idea. Look what he says next. He says that this is our spiritual worship. And that word spiritual in the ESV is, may or may not be the best rendering of that concept, right? The original Greek word here has to do with the word that we get our idea of logic from. So it makes sense. It's logical. This is why the King James uses that term reasonable service, which is your reasonable service. It's saying it, it makes sense. This is reasonable. This is logical. This, this is the best decision that you can make in light of what God has done for you, in light of the mercies of God and all that God has done to save you and to give you his spirit and to give you a hope and a future forever. It only makes sense for you then to give yourself back to him. Why would we not? It wouldn't make sense for us to deny that and run to something else and give ourselves to something else that is a lesser thing. It only makes sense. It's, it's reasonable. It's logical to give ourselves to him. We have no reason other than our lingering sin to withhold ourselves from God in any way. To not throw ourselves entirely at his mercy on the altar of his grace. We have no other reason other than our lingering sin to, to not do that. He has given us everything. He has promised us everything. He's not going to withhold from us any good thing. He says, your, your future with me is beyond anything that you can imagine. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He's the most faithful. He's the most loving. He's the most kind. He's the richest. He's the most powerful. Who else? When you start really pack, unpacking, you're like, what? right, who else would I give myself to? Why would I give myself to any of these lesser things? to think that they're going to give me what I actually want, which is what Jesus has already promised me. It's what God has already said I'm going to have. The fullness of joy. Who doesn't want that? That's God's promise. Paul's saying the proper response is to give ourselves totally and completely to Him. To submit all of our thoughts to submit all of our deeds, our actions, our emotions, our desires, yes, our literal bodies, to His kind Lordship, to offer those things to Him, to give Him access. What we need is for Him to reshape our imagination, to reshape our imagination for what our life can be like. To submit our own imaginations about what our life could look like moving forward and the ideas that we have 
and the, and the plans that we have, he's saying, no, no, submit those things to me. Because probably your imagination for what your life can look like is way too small. It's way too narrow. It's way too limited. We need God to reshape our imagination for our life. We have to die to our old self and we live to the glory of the new creation that he has made us to be. This is what we're giving ourselves to. It's not just this begrudging submission to God of like, oh, fine. I'll do what you say. No, it's, it's this promise of glory. It's this promise of joy. It's the promise of fulfillment. These are the things that he's promising us. We often just we often leave those things out and all we can focusing on is, yeah, but I want to do this thing and you're telling me I can't. I, I just really want it. It's just like when your kids go back and you're like, I, you can't have the third donut, but I just really want it. And you're like, but you don't understand, like, you're going to be sick, <laughs> but I just want it. This is what God's this is what God's promising us. Is reshape to reshape our imagination for our lives. And then Paul goes a little bit further. In verse two, he says, OK, now do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be Notice the two words that he uses. Do not be conformed. Be transformed. Paul is realizing the reality that the world around us and the systems of the world around us are continually trying to squeeze us into its mold. Trying to conform us into the image and the mold of the world around us in its systems, in its way of thinking. There's a constant pressure all the time, all around us, to conform to the world's way of of thinking and to the world's way of living. And that pressure is only increasing. The The world would say to us, there's nothing wrong with your mind. There's nothing wrong with the way that you think. There's nothing wrong with the things that you desire. There's nothing wrong with those things. Your mind is not the problem. Everything, including God and His Word, should transform to line up with your natural mind. That's that's what the world is is moving in, that kind of thought into our heads. That's where you're going to find the deepest joy, the deepest fulfillment. It's for everything to be transformed into your mind. And this goes back to Romans 1, right? Where we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we worship the creature rather than the creator. But Paul says, no, that's not the key. That's not the key here. Rather than being conformed to the world's way of thinking, he says, we must have our minds renewed. You must have your mind renewed. Our minds must be reshaped. And remade. This is part of this being new creation language that he talks about. This is deeper than stop doing these things and start doing these things. It's much deeper than that. It may include those things. Probably will include those things. Every one of us, every one of us who are in Christ, 
should expect that when we begin to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, that He is going to lovingly and graciously begin to weed out the things in our lives that are destructive to ourselves and to others. He's, he's, that's His promise. He's going to begin to weed those things out. And those, those are things that we may not realize are destructive things at first. Those may be very dearly held things in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And they have served us well over the course of our lives to our own thinking. This may include what we think about. This may include what we, what we eat, how much we eat. This may include how we steward our resources, our money, our time. This may include our emotions. Maybe we rely too heavily on our emotions or too little on our emotions. This includes our desires, our attractions, our motivations, our parenting, our marriage, our singleness. Everything. It includes everything. There are things that we think about those things naturally that may need to be reshaped and reformed from away from the world's way of thinking and into the Spirit's way of thinking. And if you're in Christ and you have the Spirit in you right now, pay attention to the thing that God may have just brought to your mind. Because that's probably the thing. I'm not saying that for sure. I'm not the Spirit. But that may be the thing, the thing that you are most guarded about. It may that you're, the thing that you're most reticent to say, oh, not that thing. That's probably the thing. That may be an area that your, your Heavenly Father wants to prune. And he wants to get in and do some work and some tinkering. Maybe a complete renovation. Paul says that God intends to transform us. And this transformation happens through a continual process of renewing our minds. It's an ongoing, continual process from the day that we come to know Jesus until the day that he fully glorifies us, however that's going to look. Our minds will continually be transformed and renewed constantly be challenging the way that we think and changing us from the inside out he changes us first by our minds and it works its way out through our actions in our lives we all want to know what god's will is for us right if you know god you want to know what his will is for you have you ever had that feeling of like god would you please just send me an email i just would love to hear what you would have me do here well, this is what Paul's saying. This is the way that we discover what God's will is for us. We have to have our minds renewed. This is how we know how to please the Father. This is how we know how to walk in His ways. By the renewing of our mind, the transformation of our lives that comes through the renewing of our minds. This is how we learn to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. By remembering God's mercies towards us. Not in fear of his condemnation, but reflecting back and thinking, oh, the goodness of God. He saved me. Look what he saved me from. Look what he's promised me. How could I not lay myself down before him and say, keep going. Do what you want. Keep going. I trust you. Keep going. Take it all. Take my heart. Take my desires. Take my thoughts. Take my attractions. Take it all. And do what you want with it. We don't cower in fear of His wrath. We don't fearfully scramble 
from one heartless good deed to another, hoping that we can stay on his good side. We surrender ourselves to his loving and gracious care. And we ask him to weigh in. And as he does, he will lead us into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are, the, those are the fruit that begins to grow from a life that is laid down at the altar before him. The Spirit invades and it starts growing this fruit. And the Bible says against those things, those, there's no laws against those things. Everybody wants those things. Whether they realize it or not. And that's our future. That's where we're going. And that's what he has promised to us as his children. So let's embrace it. Let's not run from it. Let's not cower from his condemnation. Let's embrace in our weakness. Let's run to him in repentance because we don't have to worry about the condemnation. We don't have to worry about the wrath in our weakness, in our sin. We run to him and not away from him. Whatever your weakness is, my weakness looks different than your weakness. My sin often looks different than your sin. I have it. You have it. We all have it. Let's embrace it and take it to him and lay it down before him. And be open with one another and not feel like we have to hide from him or from each other. If we hide from each other, we're denying it all the same. We embrace our weakness and we lean into his strength. Because he will make us strong. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for this word. We thank you for your goodness. And we ask for your help as we continue to worship, to you, worship you. And we continue to pray to you. Expose our hearts this morning and give us more of your grace.